Okay, thank you. I think we'll get started. I'd like to welcome everyone in the room and uh, the people who are watching us remotely. I've already forgotten my Uh, so I'm Kathy Lyons. I'm a member of the Cancer Control Program here, and it is my great pleasure and privilege to be able to introduce our speaker today. But I'll do my housekeeping so that I don't forget. Um, for CME credit, please make sure you sign the form on your way out. And I want to read the following conflict of interest statement. Dr. DeMarc Wanafree does not have any financial interests. She reports that she does not intend to discuss off-label or investigational uses of a product or device, and she attests she's not receiving direct payments from a commercial entity with respect to this activity. Okay, now that that's done. Um, so it is my pleasure to welcome Wendy here. Wendy DeMarc Wanafried is Professor and Web Chair in Nutrition Sciences at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. Uh, she completed her undergraduate work at the University of Michigan, her graduate work at the Texas Women's University, and earned her PhD in Nutrition Science from Syracuse University. She spent 17 years at Duke University, then went to MD Anderson Cancer Center before rec being recruited to UAB at Birmingham in 2010. There she is an Associate Director of the UAB Comprehensive Cancer Center, and she's a senior scientist at many of the UAB centers, including the Center for Aging, the Center for Exercise Medicine, the Minority Health and Health Disparities Research Center, the Center for Palliative and Supportive Care, and the Center for Outcomes and Effectiveness Research in Education. In 2014, she was awarded the Clinical Research Professor Award from the American Cancer Society. Uh, she's published her research in over 200 articles in peer-reviewed journals. She served on countless review boards and advisory councils, including the American Cancer Society's Advisory Committee on Diet and Physical Activity for Cancer Survivorship and their Committee on Diet and Physical Activity for Cancer Prevention. Uh, she was the principal investigator of many clinical trials of diet and exercise interventions, uh, many with wonderful acronyms. My favorites are including RENEW, Reach Out to Enhance Wellness in Older Adult Cancer Survivors, the DAMES Study, Daughters and Mothers Against Breast Cancer, the Fresh Start Study, STRENGTH, which stands for Survivor Training and Enhancing Total Health, and Project LEAD, which was standing for Leading the Way in Diet and Exercise. Uh, she's certainly been leading the way for all of us here who are interested in wellness and lifestyle intervention research, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you up. Thank you. <coughs> well, thank you. It's a great honor to be here, and I really appreciate uh, Kathleen inviting me and uh, to the opportunity to have to meet with many of you this morning. Uh, there's certainly a lot of really great research that's going on here, and uh, you really should be proud of yourself as a cancer center and as an institution to support such research and to have such uh, innovative and creative minds here. So really a pleasure to be here. I have been tasked with uh, covering the diet and exercise recommendations for cancer survivors. What's the state of the science, and are there effective interventions? And so. What I'm going to do is give kind of a broad brushstrokes overview of the diet and, and what we now have for diet and exercise recommendations in this area, and, uh, and then talk about some uh, interventions that we have do uh, done in, um, while I was at Duke, while I was at MD Anderson, and, and, uh, and now at UAB, 
And uh, as Kathleen says, um, the first step is getting a good acronym. So uh, those of you out there, uh, I'm sure you struggle with that, and uh, um, uh, it's always been a challenge for us. Uh, again, no disclosures. I'd love to have disclosures. If any of you have any company and you want to give me millions of dollars, please do so. I'd, I'd be happy to have that. Um, not, not that fortunate. So um, the objectives, kind of went over them, going to talk about the, the, um, what are um, the recommendations, but, but really frame those with the common issues in cancer survivorship. Uh, and then I'll leave you with some of the gaps in knowledge that I'm sure that your research portfolio is going to fill over the course of the years. Um, so uh, cancer survivorship, there is definitely some good news here. The number of cancer survivors are increasing dramatically, uh, and uh, the projections are there in the, the red lines. There are, they're only going to continue going up and up as uh, cancer is diagnosed at early and earlier stages and as uh, treatment improves. So, uh, and, of course, as aging, as our population ages, because cancer is a disease of aging. So that's the good news. And uh, right now, there's over 15 million cancer survivors in the US. They comprise about 4% of our population. And again, that proportion is increasing. But there's some bad news here. Uh, and cancer survivors are at risk. They're at risk for progressive disease. They're at risk for second primaries. In fact, um, the leading cancer in the United States now are second primaries in uh, people who have already had cancers. So um, big problem here. Cardiovascular disease, and in some cancers, uh, cardiovascular disease claims more lives than the cancer itself. And we're talking here breast and prostate cancer, uh, which are our most common cancers. Cardiovascular disease uh, kills more people than the cancer. <laughs> Diabetes, obesity, osteoporosis, sarcopenia, which is muscle loss that occurs with especially some forms of treatment like chemotherapy. Functional decline, which could be a result of that sarcopenia. And then uh, sizable proportions of cancer survivors have depression and fatigue. Diet and exercise are possible solutions here. And this chart provides you with um, the uh, either one check denoting possible benefit, two checks denoting probable benefit, three checks denoting convincing benefit, that diet and exercise can help. So um, at this point in time, I'm a dietitian by training, and uh, I'm always remorseful when I see this chart because it shows here that exercise has more checks than, than uh, diet does. Uh, however, diet has a, a, a substantial showing, and uh, where we really do have uh, growing evidence is in this area of recurrent and progressive disease, where studies are now ongoing. But if you will look at the box right above it in comorbidity, we know diet and exercise help, particularly in cardiovascular disease, where there is a sizable body of literature that really supports diet and exercise <laughs> changes. So this is not, um, this is not uh, uh, shattering news here that diet and exercise can be so I'm going to be talking today about the, the cancer um, uh, diet and exercise uh, recommendations. There are two organizations that put out recommendations for cancer survivors <coughs> that encompass both of these areas. One is the World Cancer Research Fund, 
uh, or the American Institute of Cancer Research, which is the American arm of that. And they revisit the, um, the diet, the diet and, and, and physical activity literature at least every 10 years, and they have ongoing updates. Um, if, for example, the uh, WCRF just released uh, their report in prostate cancer a, a few years ago. Right prior to that was the breast cancer report. Um, <coughs> These are much more comprehensive guidelines. They actually have a board that works on these 24-7, and they, um, they really do a fantastic job of doing a, a comprehensive systematic review. The American Cancer Society does issue guidelines as well. I serve on their panel. They basically pull us in for one weekend uh, every five years, and you can uh, so. Yes, we do look at the literature. It's not as comprehensive of a review. And really, the uh, recommendations are based a lot on what springs out of the WCRF. So, um, so let's, I'm going to go through these and uh, talk about uh, the guidelines in order of importance. At the very top is weight. So you see here that there are a little bit more stringent guidelines by the WCRF. Be as lean as possible without becoming underweight. What, if you read through their document, which is hundreds and hundreds of pages, what they're really promoting is a weight of around 22.5 BMI uh, or lower. So any, anywhere between 18.5 to 22.5 for the greatest health benefit. Uh, the American Cancer Society takes the um, party line on uh, achieving and maintaining a healthy weight with BMI of uh, 24.9, really kind of signifying the upper range. And uh, so what is the evidence in this, this area? Well, first of all, we know that cancer risk increases with overweight and obesity. And uh, that is apparent in, in eight separate cancers. And here we have a, a graph of uh, increasing risk with overweight, which is the blue bar, and the added risk of, uh, uh, that is associated with obesity, which is the red bar over on top of it. Um, for years, there were these five cancers uh, that were on the list, breast, and again, weight is, uh, or overweight and obesity is just a risk factor for postmenopausal disease. It is not a risk factor for uh, premenopausal breast cancer. Uh, colorectal cancer, endometrial is the big winner here uh, as far as, uh, or the big uh, contributor here. Uh, obese women have a 2.52 fold risk of having um, endometrial, uh, obese women have a, a 2.52 fold risk in, in getting endometrial cancer as compared to normal weight women. Um, kidney cancer, esophageal cancer, and here we're talking about gastric cardia type of esophageal cancer. Uh, the new uh, cancers that have been added within the past three years have been pancreatic cancer, thyroid cancer, gallbladder cancer, uh, and those are really the new cancers on the block where the, the evidence has now switched into consensus. And the, um, the one that is more probable that's kind of waiting in the wings is ovarian cancer, where obesity and overweight are risk factors. So that's obesity and primary risk. What about obesity and mortality? 
Well, these two charts show you uh, that uh, obesity is a risk factor for cancer-related mortality for not just eight cancers, but for, for 15 different cancers in men and women. Uh, and here is the classic work of Jean Cal uh, that uh, she did right before she died in 2003, and that has been reconfirmed in study after study. What about uh, weight gain after, um, after the diagnosis of cancer? Well, there have been studies that have been done uh, large numbers of studies that have been done in breast and prostate cancer that we can take the data and get a really kind of a, a firm idea of what's going on here. A uh, study by June Chan, 82 separate studies that was reported last year. Uh, a sample, a pooled sample of over 2,000 women with breast cancer. And what they found is, is that uh, breast cancer specific mortality increased by roughly 30% in women who were obese, or, or excuse me, uh, let me get my, my facts straight here, 30% for every five kilogram per meter gain uh, in, uh, in BMI, and total mortality increased 8% uh, in that area. If somebody was asking me what I would have predicted, I would have thought that it would have been the other way around as far as total mortality and breast cancer specific mortality, but the data are the data. Uh, with regard to prostate cancer, we, there are six cohort studies in this area. Uh, again, uh, not as many as breast cancer, uh, but a sizable sample. And uh, among men who uh, have a five kilogram per meter gain, um, there is a 20% increased risk of biochemical recurrence and um, prostate cancer mortality. We also know uh, that BMI is a predictor of total uh, mortality. And here are the, the uh, various studies that have been done. Uh, a very, very nice review that was published uh, last year in, annual, in the Annals of Oncology. And here is your, um, your one line that signifies equivocal risk. And you can see here that all the, that uh, uh, most of the point estimates lie to the, um, to the right-hand side of one. Some of the confidence, confidence intervals include one, but you're getting a, a basic picture here that, uh, that with increasing BMI, risk goes up. So what are the mechanisms that are associated between obesity and uh, cancer? Well, there's many. And we really don't know for sure what is the driver here. And, we, and most people will speculate that it's, um, it's really complex and it's probably a multitude of these different factors. So uh, uh, when people are obese, they have increased inflammation, whether it be CRP or IL-6 or pick your inflammatory marker du jour. Um, increased adipokines, leptin, uh, for example. There are growth factors, VEGF, uh, EGF, that, that play into cancer that are increased with uh, increasing obesity. Sex steroids, estrogens, um, are uh, increased in women uh, because of the aroma, higher levels of aromatase that, uh, that uh, is, resides in fat stores and therefore uh, then uh, causes women that are obese to have higher estrogen levels. Uh, and when people are obese, not only do they have increased sex steroids, 
but they have decreased binding proteins. So more of that estrogen or more of that testosterone is then there free to interact with target tissue uh, and uh, uh, increase risk. And then uh, uh, insulin, higher levels of insulin. You just have increased levels of substrate, free fatty acids uh, and uh, glucose, uh, and as well as the um, uh, comorbidities that may play into cancer, such as diabetes. Then you have the antithesis of, uh, of these factors, uh, actually uh, agents that will prevent or are used to treat diabetes, such as metformin, that may have a protective effect. Statins may have a protective effect against cancer. So weight loss interventions. And, and cancer survivors. They've actually been going on for a long time. Uh, the very first trial was done by DeWard in, uh, in was actually reported in 1993, so 20 years ago. Uh, he was a little bit before his time uh, when he started putting women on weight loss, uh, a weight loss protocol. The oncologists uh, did not refer their patients to him, and he had to close his trial early because nobody would refer to him. So kind of shows you that early adopters sometimes do not um, uh, come up with, with uh, positive findings. But um, since the time of DeWard, there have been 17 weight loss trials. Um, most of these are done in breast cancer. They range from 2 to 18 months. And uh, 50... Um, close to 60% have resulted in favorable uh, changes in the body, um, have resulted in greater than 5% weight loss, improvements in quality of life, lipids, um, physical functioning, blood pressure, uh, inflammatory markers, um, insulin-related markers. Uh, the one that is currently, that will be reported in JCO eminently is the ENERGY trial. Uh, it was just accepted, and so look out for that. It is, it is under embargo, so I can't necessarily share, you, share with you the results, except to say that it basically falls in line with the other 17 in showing favorable outcomes. Uh, the Success C study is being done in Germany, and the Diana 5 is, is currently being done in the Mediterranean countries. So um, uh, now... The one thing that is interesting is, is that uh, in um, uh, roughly five years ago, Rachel Ballard-Barbash um, published an article that uh, said, well, what, how many people will it take in order to show survival benefit of a weight loss program in women with breast cancer? And in that publication, uh, they advocated for a sample size of 2,500 or above. And as you see here, uh, all of these trials are below that. So whether we will, even though these are large trials, we are probably not going to see any sort of uh, definitive work in this area based on these trials, and we do need a uh, trial to, uh, to be able to, to give us uh, answers. There's been a great deal of interest in obesity and cancer. That uh, started with an IOM workshop uh, in 2011. I was really privileged to chair this workshop. Um, the American Cancer Society, uh, I'm sorry, the American Society of Clinical Oncology came out with their position statement uh, on obesity and cancer in November. Uh, and this has been a mission of theirs, and they have companion uh, pieces here as far as 
uh, a toolkit for clinicians. So if you're a clinician and you wanted to have some tips on how to approach patients, I really highly encourage you to get this, this one booklet that's featured here with this uh, clinician that's looking at the scale here. And then they have a companion piece as far as uh, what would go to the patient. Um, and then there, uh, as far as practical clinical um, interventions, there was just a piece that, that came out in uh, CA Journal Clinicians uh, last month. So I encourage you to take a look at that if this is an area you want to pursue. So um, actually dovetailing onto that is our physical activity guidelines. Again, the WCRF is a little bit more stringent. They, they advocate for physical activity 30 minutes every day. Uh, and uh, whereas the American Cancer Society, as you see over here, avoid inactivity. So again, we're, um, uh, the ACS are a little bit more lenient, or a lot more lenient, uh, and uh, uh, advocating for uh, a physical activity of, of 150 minutes a week. So what kind of data do we have here? Well, the ACSM reviewed exercise in cancer patients. There was a great article by Katie Schmitz in 2009, and then that was actually repeated uh, a couple of years ago. Um, and in that review, as in the, the um, uh, subsequent review, they found that exercise increased aerobic fitness, muscle strength, flexibility, uh, body size and composition, <clears throat> reduced fatigue, improved quality of life, uh, improved physical functioning, and reduced anxiety and depression. And um, the, um, uh, the evidence for that was modest, however, it was consistent. And so those are, um, those are real uh, find, uh, consensus of findings that, that we see. However, um, that being said, uh, we, still, we still are looking for, uh, again, does exercise really affect uh, cancer outcomes? The first study that's going to be looking at that is the challenge trial. I don't know if um, uh, Dartmouth is a site for that uh, or not, but that's being done by, led by Carrie Kernier in colorectal cancer survivors and seeing if exercise can improve cancer outcomes. Um, as far as uh, what we see here in, in observational data, and I apologize, these are really coming out a little bit, it's a little bit small here, but we see here in changes that um, uh, of physical activity from pre to post di diagnosis, and up here is total mort. The first two plots have to do with total mortality. The second two ones deal with cancer-specific mortality. What we see is that it, in people who increase the, their um, physical activity after diagnosis, we see uh, a, an improvement, as uh, denoted here, for total mortality, and also here for cancer-specific mortality. And for people who decrease, we see increased risk for um, total mortality and cancer-specific <laughs> mortality. Again, these are observational data, so we don't know what's happening here, what comes first. Is it that inactive people actually have higher, uh, higher disease uh, or more aggressive disease in the first place, and that's why we see um, higher mortality? Or is it the fact that through exercise, we can actually make an impact on mortality? 
dietary pattern. And here's an area that I really had the pleasure of talking with many people here uh, this morning, and I really appreciated that opportunity. So um, the WCRF, uh, avoid sugary drinks. We're talking here a lot of recommendations, uh, added fats, added sugars, how that plays into energy balance. Uh, eating more vegetables and fruits, which of course boosts up nutrient in intake while being a fairly low caloric source. Uh, and then limit the consumption of processed and red meats. Uh, the WCRF does uh, really focus a lot on salty foods because that recommendation has to go globally. And salt intake, particularly in Asian countries, is really quite high and feeds into recurrent disease for head and neck cancers and um, uh, the cancers that are more prevalent in that part of the world. In the United States, uh, the ACS uh, choose foods, and again, choose foods and beverages that are are going to be able to maintain a healthy weight, increase fruit and vegetable consumption to at least two and a half cups per day, uh, whole versus refined grains, and again, this recommendation for uh, low meat consumption. So what data do we have on this? Again, observational data. So uh, here are some uh, studies that look compared dietary patterns, and they compared the prudent dietary pattern, which is kind of depicted here at the top of the screen, lots of fruits and vegetables, whole grains, low-fat, dairy, uh, versus the typical McDonald's diet, which is the Western diet, lots of sugar, lots of beef. So what do we see here? And, and I've broken this table into uh, breast cancer studies, which are the first three, and we're, we're talking here about sizable studies, uh, and uh, and then also and then the colorectal cancer study, which is at the the bottom here, and then the prudent versus the Western diet. The the significant uh, findings are highlighted in the yellow boxes. So basically, the the study results by Cranky and Kwan line up uh, consistently, and what they show is that the prudent diet. Um, is protective for other cause mortality. Uh, and uh, basically reducing other cause mortality by anywhere from um, 70, well, 60, 65% to 50% uh, of, of uh, recurrence or of, of, of uh, uh, mortality. Um, the Western diet, on the other hand, puts people at risk for mortality uh, by more than double. But again, it's not cancer-related mortality, it's this other cause mortality. This is not a big news flash because, of course, we know that the uh, high-fat, high-meat, high-low-fiber uh, uh, diet is a risk factor for heart disease. And so this is what we're seeing here. Uh, and um, um, so uh, that's the, the main story here. Uh, but it really doesn't play into, you don't see any significant findings in breast cancer-specific mortality, except here with the Reeling study that showed that the Western diet puts, puts women at risk for, um, uh, for cancer-related uh, mortality. Uh, Meyerhart, on the other hand, he looked at uh, colorectal cancer survivors, and you see here that he didn't see any protection for the prudent diet, but for the Western diet, he saw risk for that uh, was double to triple the risk in um, for uh, colorectal cancer specific mortality and all cause mortality. 
So these are compelling findings, but again, um, they are very, they, they're subject to bias because they are observational. There have been other studies that have looked at diet quality, and in three out of four of these studies, uh, um, what the main message is is the higher the diet quality, and diet quality is usually a measure of fruit and vegetable consumption, whole grains, uh, and lower intakes of meats. That was associated with uh, protection for cancer-specific mortality. Um, in some cases, this was really quite um, amazing, like uh, uh, basically reduced, reduction of risk of 90%, according to some of the studies by George. Um, but in dietary pattern, we actually do have two studies. Uh, unfortunately, they have shown conflicting findings, but I'm going to present them here. One is the Wells study. And uh, um, the, um, Jennifer Eamond actually had the pleasure of working in. Jennifer, you want to raise your hand here? Yeah, there she is. Okay. She's a transplant from UCSD, and she was on the front line of this study. Um, but uh, this was a study that was done in over 3,000 women with early-stage breast cancer. And the intervention here was a very high fruit and vegetable intake um, uh, diet, uh, five vegetable servings plus 16 ounces of vegetable juice plus three ounces of uh, uh, fruit. Uh, and that, uh, that basically played into about 30 grams of fiber a day. And, um, and to consume that along with a low-fat diet of 15 to 20% of calories from fat. The follow-up was 10 years. This was a very strong study. But you couldn't get more equivocal findings here um, if you tried. So um, the, uh, that one is in opposition to the uh, WIND study. Now, this, just, this didn't have the fruit and vegetable consumption component, but it had the low-fat diet. Um, here, the cutoff was a 15% of calories from fat. The women were fairly compliant. They didn't hit the, the low-fat 15% of calories from fat, but they did cut their intake down to 20%. So they made substantial changes. Um, in all patients, you saw some effect. The, here's the low-fat diet uh, as far as the breast cancer events. And here is the regular diet that was the control arm, healthy, low, uh, healthy diet control arm. Um, contrary to what the investigators hypothesized, the effect was the strongest in this group, in this subset of women here with ER negative disease. So, um, in some ways, this is a bit, these are um, uh, hopeful findings because this is an ER negative disease is an area where the treatment has historically not been as effective as ER positive disease uh, and can offer um, offer some some help in that area. But this study, you know, these, this does raise some questions. Why, why are these two studies so different? Well, um, the WIND studies was, uh, took women within one year of diagnosis, well, within five years. The sample was different. Um, the uh, WIND study was all postmenopause. Well, the WELL study was a, a variety of women at different points in their life, life uh, cycle. Um, the, um, the screen was different. For WIND study, um, Duke was a site, so I know that anybody that had a low-fat diet to begin with, we, we didn't take them into the study because they were already following the intervention. Whereas the WELL study, they didn't screen out people who already followed a high fruit and vegetable uh, mm -hmm. diet. And in some cases, um, 
uh, that intake was really quite high to begin with. In fact, the average number of servings was 7.4 servings of fruits and vegetables a day. It's very difficult to make an impact if you're already um, in a group that's consuming that much. And then the other factors, and this is really what's pointed out as the, what um, people suspect is the difference between these two trials, is that in the WIND study, which was just the low fat, women lost six pounds over the course of the study. And, and people are saying, well, that's, that's probably the, why we're seeing the, the difference. But nobody knows for sure because the effects are confounded. So one uh, area that people always ask about is alcohol. Um, and uh, so if you see here, uh, the recommendation, if you drink, uh, drink one, limit your drinking to one to two drinks a day. One drink if you're a woman, two drinks if you're a man. Well, what's the evidence for that? Well, there's really not that much evidence if you look at cancer. Um, quite, quite frankly, there, alcohol is not protective for cancer at all. Uh, it is a risk factor for cancer. And the, effect, and, uh, the alcohol is generally, the, the risk is linear. When you're looking at breast cancer, it's, there's, there's no doubt about it looking at the, the, the data. Um, however, there is a significant cardiovascular benefit for um, uh, alcohol. And so that's why the recommendation is in there, uh, because a substantial number of women will, uh, women, and I say that because many women with breast cancer, this is a, an issue that they need to, that they, um, is, is one that uh, they want to find out about, um, is uh, the cardiovascular um, risk is, is high. Uh, now, granted, uh, so, you know, what do you tell those women? Well, you basically, um, the, the data show that women that have breast cancer that continue to drink have higher levels of contralateral uh, breast cancer. Uh, however, they don't die from the breast cancer, and their mortality rates are actually better if they drink. So they recur more often but they survive better. So you decide, you decide, you, the woman has to decide, where am I in this? And also looking at the family tree is important. Uh, if this woman comes from a family where cardiovascular disease kills most people, well then, that, that drink of red wine might help. Um, now, could she exercise and get the same benefit? Well, that's another thing that you can push. Definitely head and neck cancer survivors should not drink at all, as you probably do know. Okay, and then the last one is supplements. The WCRF comes out and says do not use supplements to protect against cancer. In the um, American Cancer Society, it's not as bold, but if you look through the pages of the recommendations, that is the message that, as you read the text, comes out. Um, and uh, so this is not a pot. When I go and speak to the general public, I, you know, people basically are ready to throw their tomatoes at me because they uh, do not agree with this statement. Um, and so let's look at the literature that, that supports this recommendation. And I must say that serving on the ACS panel, uh, in 2010 we met and we discussed the recommendations and we came to this one and it was polarized. Uh, and uh, so half of the people said, oh, we can't say anything against supplements. And half of the people said, of course we can say something against supplements. 
And everybody got in a big huff and we basically left the table and the recommendations were not made that year. Uh, everybody went home, cooled off, came back again in 2012 and we re reconvened and started again. But, okay, so the recommendation is not to support supplements. And uh, the uh, one study that we have in cancer survivors, now there are, there, is a, um, there are some studies that were done in the 1990s that looked at, um, that looked at vitamin A um, intake during the time of treatment. These are more uh, cancer survivor study. And there's one study that was done uh, looking at alpha tocopherol and beta carotene. It was a, a sizable trial done in 540 cases of head and neck cancer. It was done in Montreal. And uh, here's your uh, plot that basically shows that um, here's survival. Uh, and uh, the uh, survival is better in the people that got the placebo than the person, people that got the, the supplement. And if you look at the um, uh, hazards ratio uh, of having second primaries, you see that the people that got the supplement had roughly three times the amount of um, second primaries as the, as the placebo group. So this is not great news, um, and uh, we can go into that if we have questions at the end, but um, that's, that's what the data are. And uh, um, so when we look at the synergy between lifestyle practices, we see that people that follow more of those recommendations actually have better outcomes here. Uh, and uh, there have been um, uh, studies by uh, Stephanie George at the NCI, John Pierce, and uh, with the, um, uh, women, the Iowa Women's Health Study that all show that the more recommendations you follow, the better uh, the chances are that you would avoid um, death as well as cancer-specific death. So um, one in, in this case, one in one make three. Um, as far as what needs to be done in cancer survivors, there is so much that needs to be done uh, we know that the majority of cancer survivors are either overweight or obese. They're just like our general population. Uh, and in some cases, in breast and prostate cancer survivors, there's higher, higher um, uh, prevalence of obesity. Uh, and then here's some um, data from uh, Chris Blanchard that looks at physical activity, five a day, and smoking. And um, here are the... Um, uh, and actually, this is uh, vice versa. This is re. This uh, is not. Um, this is uh, inappropriately titled, and I apologize here. Um, here, here are the people that actually adhere to the the recommendation. So it should be do adhere to the recommendation. So a minority for physical activity. For five a day, a clear minority, five a day, five servings of fruits and vegetables a day, uh, roughly 15 to, to 20 percent. And most cancer survivors, except of course um, lung, head and neck cancer survivors, do not smoke. So I want to just talk to you about trials that um, we've done that have tested multi-component interventions because again, one and one does make three. And uh, many of our interventions hit both diet and exercise. We've had Project LEAD, we've had, um, which, started, which was really our, our start off point, 
which was done in 182 older cancer survivors, a six-month intervention. We found that we were able to, with a uh, mail, tailored mail materials and telephone counseling, improve um, diet quality and physical activity with a trend toward physical functioning. However, uh, it was only a six-month intervention, and when we followed these people up for another six months, they um, went back to their old behaviors. So um, that was discouraging, but it kind of showed us that what we need to do is, is intervene for a longer period of time. So our next foray was this Fresh Start study, which is featured here. Uh, and our um, approach generally has a, a tailored workbook, a series of tailored newsletters, um, uh, logs that people can report their intake of fat, in, in the case of Fresh Start, their intake of uh, total and saturated fat, their intake of fruits and vegetables, how much exercise they're getting per day, per day on their pedometer. Self-monitoring is a great tool. In fact, if you go to Weight Watchers or you go to Jenny Craig, the very first thing that they slap you with is, you must monitor your intake. If you do anything else in, in their protocol, um, by monitoring your intake uh, of, of uh, your dietary intake, you will reduce the amount of calories you consume by 10%. So, of course, this is a, a you know, it's an, it's an effective intervention. Um, Fresh Start was done in 543 breast and prostate cancer survivors who were diagnosed within nine months. And what we found with that intervention is, is that, yes, we were able to change fruit and vegetable <coughs> intake, dietary fat, increase uh, physical activity, and our, that intervention was 12 months in length. And that intervention was durable. When we went back to that population two years afterwards, they were still uh, exercising. They were still following a, um, a high fruit and vegetable intake. The thing that they weren't doing is they weren't watching their, their dietary fat, uh, which there's a, there's a um, if those of you that aren't behavioral scientists, uh, may be interested in the fact that there are additive behaviors and there are reductive behaviors. When you take something away from people, it tends not to be um, durable. Whereas if you add something, it's one of, it has a greater potential of being a durable effect. Um, our next foray was uh, Renew, and I'm going to get into that in a little bit, um, so I'm not going to really go into that, so I'm going to, uh, and then we did a mother-daughter intervention that I had um, the pleasure of talking with um, uh, Jennifer about, uh, and you know how we can translate some of the uh, findings into doing multi-generational, multi-component interventions. So the commonalities across our interventions are um, uh, that we are able to, um, with uh, uh, behavioral theory, and our most of our uh, work is is um, it takes from social cognitive theory as well as a trans-theoretical model in order to shift behavior. And we do a, a host of various tailoring for our, our patients. Um, here are just some of the variables that we use, age, weight, gender, race, ethnicity, some of the, the typical ones that uh, a lot of people do. Uh, but we also tailor on cancer type. Cancer coping style is a... No, is, uh, um, a trait that was first reported by Maggie Watson in the UK. Uh, and the uh, cancer coping styles that you <laughs> may be most familiar with are the fighting spirit versus fatalism. Uh, and that's where most people tend to play out. So we give a message based on that and how, 
how you would approach those, those two camps. Uh, and then what we do is we provide people with input on their progress over time and do that iteratively. Uh, because we do a lot of distance medicine-based interventions, uh, we can uh, use cancer registries around the world, really, to, to tap into to get our patient population. And because of that, uh, we have excellent reach. Here's the reach for the Renew study, which was in 21 US states, a Canadian province, and also the UK. So we were able to deliver this intervention anywhere in the English-speaking world. When we do tailor, we do iteratively tailored uh, messages. So first we do a baseline telephone survey. We generate a telephone workbook. Um, and we send that out. Then we hit people with another survey. We collect more data. And then we generate a tailored newsletter. And that process goes on uh, for a number of cycles. And here are just some uh, uh, examples of tailored messages. Uh, we address barriers to um, uh, different behaviors uh, via an advice column. Uh, this top one is ask dear, you know, ask Miss Green, who's going to tell you about how you would uh, increase your fruit and vegetable consumption. And this, this particular message is for people who eat out a lot. Well, how do you eat a lot of fruits and vegetables when you go to a restaurant? Um, Again, these messages are iterative, so we give people graphs, and we give them reinforcement, or we give them encouragement if they're not able to adhere to their goal. And then um, what we do is we really do customize our, our advice so that if people are eating a lot of fat, um, they will get a different message if they eat a, lot, eat a lot of fat through ice cream, cookies, and chocolate candy versus if they eat a lot of pork chops. Uh, and so we really do hone in on where people are um, going astray. Um, I, this is the Renew study. And here what we did is we tested the impact of a diet and exercise uh, mailed material and telephone counseling intervention in 641 older adults. Um, and uh, these people were not only older adults, but they were long-term cancer survivors, uh, more than five years out past diagnosis. Again, tailored workbook, series of tailored newsletters, a poster that they could hang on their fridge. What you don't see here is a little tailored magnet that says, hi, Maggie, time to get you know, exercising. Uh, and uh, a portion plate, which they really loved, uh, and, uh, and exercise bands. And then they, um, because this was an older population, the older population said, we want to be able to talk to a human being. So we had, here's a picture of one of our telephone counselors on the telephone with our, one of our patients. <coughs> Study schema, typical um, clinical trial where you take your cancer survivors, half of them are, are assigned to the intervention group, half to observation. Uh, and this is weightless control. Uh, and so uh, at one year, then what you do is you flip your groups, uh, crossover design, and then uh, the intervention's delivered to the weightless group the uh, in immediate intervention is observed, and then two-year follow-up. Um, this study had two-year, 24% uh, attrition at two years, which isn't bad for a two-year study, in adults that were age 65 to 91. Um, oh, I lied, 65 to 87. I didn't, okay. Please forgive me. I did not memorize that well enough. Um, 
This kind of shows you our demographic here uh, of the, the people that came into the study. You can read this as much as, as, as well as I can. Um, and the results of this trial were highly uh, positive. Uh, we got significant results across the board for physical function, uh, for um, their uh, adherence to exercise, fruit and vegetable intake, saturated fat intake, healthy eating index, weight, BMI, and uh, their quality of life. So this was a very positive study. Uh, and those results were reported in JAMA. And then we did the follow-up at two years and found that for diet quality, what happens here is the, the dashed blue line is the immediate intervention group. The yellow line is the waitlisted control group that then gets their intervention at one year and then comes up to the same level as the, the immediate intervention group. Um, same trend for physical activity, same thing for weight loss. So for these three outcomes here, for diet quality, activity, and BMI, the um, intervention was not only reproducible, the effect of the intervention, but also durable at two years. Uh, and in fact, this stands as one of the few weight loss trials in this, this area that is durable. With physical functioning, unfortunately, when you stop intervening in older cancer, older cancer survivors, they start declining. So uh, we did put them at a higher, you know, when we intervened, we left them at a higher level. But in order to keep them going, you'd probably have to hit them with a higher level of an intervention afterwards. So I want to end with a study that we're doing now. It's a gardening study. And uh, we got into this because there was a, a, an expressed need or expressed interest for more holistic um, interventions that it was expressed by cancer survivors. And Cicero has reported therapeutic benefits of gardening back as early as 60 BC. Uh, so we did a, a pilot study, and we found in, uh, across a large variety of adult cancer survivors, childhood cancer survivors, and their parents, and uh, tested a year-long intervention and found that um, the, uh, um, the uh, fruit and vegetable intake increased by one serving in roughly 50% of our adults. Uh, up to 67% uh, increased their physical activity by at least one day a week. And then um, improvements in 100% of our people in three out of four functional tasks, whether it be grip strength, the 30-second chair stand, the six-minute walk, um, and uh, uh, the eight-foot get-up-and-go. So our childhood cancer survivors didn't improve as much as our adults, probably because children have higher levels of function, uh, but their parents did very well. So um, our intervention is a year-long intervention that we work with the cooperative extension. We give the cancer survivor the supplies they need to either do a raised bed garden, which is featured here, or four earth boxes, which give them equivalent square footage. Uh, and they are paired with a cooperative extension aid, uh, sorry, a master gardener from the, their cooperative extension uh, 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 county facility uh, and uh, followed for three years. Now, in Alabama, it's a little bit different than New Hampshire. We have three growing seasons. So uh, you have maybe one, half, uh, I don't know. Uh, so, uh, um, but uh, they do a spring, a summer, and, uh, and a fall garden. So I just want to give you, I think I have enough time to, to still talk a little bit. I grew up on a large farm. 
but had not had garden in all of my adult life. Susan Rossman has a garden now. A cancer survivor, she was one of the first participants in a UAB study called Harvest for Health. I like the idea of growing because it was the whole circle of life. Plus, taking better care of myself was going to be a big part of that. Having some fresh vegetables. Harvest for Health cares cancer survivors with master gardeners from the Alabama Cooperative Extension System. The premise is simple. If we had a vegetable garden in people's uh, yard, would they would they eat more vegetables? Um, what we found is, is that they not only eat more vegetables, they also get more exercise. The study began in 2011 in Jefferson County. The master gardener and cancer survivor met each month for a year, planting and tending a fall, spring, and summer garden at the survivor's home. UAB provided the gardening supplies, raised beds or earth boxes, plants, and tools. The survivors supplied the labor and reaped the benefits. What we found in that study is, again, the diet improved, the exercise improved, and the physical functioning improved. And, says Rossman, growing a garden helps cancer survivors fight back against a <coughs> And I think what I felt was better about the fact that AI controlling a lot more things in my life than I was before, which gave me a more positive outlook, which made me feel better about, um, you know, I can live to be 90. Master Gardener Mary Beth Shaddix believes in the healing power of growing your own food. I love to grow my own food, and I want to tell as many people as I can how fun it is and how rewarding it is and how tasty it is. Because I promise you, if you grow it yourself, you thought you didn't like it. The fresh homegrown one that you try may just change your mind. The Master Gardener's role is to provide expert advice and assistance and to be a cheerleader for gardening. Whether you have a backyard spread or a pot on your porch. I think there's room physically, space-wise in your life, and I also think there's room uh, on the kitchen table. No matter what you're faced with in life, I think if you make this a part of your routine and a part of your natural curiosity about what nature can do, um, sure, why not? Encourage everyone to try this. With support from the Community Foundation of Greater Birmingham and the National Cancer Institute, <laughs> Harvest for Health is now recruiting cancer survivors and master gardeners from across Alabama, from Colton and Montgomery. In 10 years, what I would really like is if we had a program that was sustainable on a national level. Rossman is not part of the study any longer, but she has kept her garden going. The simple act of growing something has had a profound impact. I think that cancer can be the worst thing that ever happens here, or it can be a life-changing event that you do something with instead of letting it do something to you. I think if every cancer survivor that wanted to produce something like this, it could change the way they look at everything. So that's our newest intervention on the block. And uh, it's really exciting, and uh, we, uh, in fact, the, the grant uh, application was reviewed yesterday. So knock on wood, hoping that it, it works. Um, but uh, what we're doing is, in that intervention, is we're doing home visits to do the, um, the assessments. So we're going out to people's houses uh, to do uh, weights, heights. Uh, we do a fasting blood draw. Uh, we're looking specifically now at a telomerase, D-dimer, IL-6, and VCAM, uh, biomarkers of successful aging. Uh, doing a host of questionnaires. Uh, we're doing a rectal wipe, and you're thinking, why in the world are we doing that? Uh, and that's to look at the microbiome. 
Uh, and uh, we're also looking at salivary and nail cortisol, just because I have a student that is do, want doing that for their doctoral work. Uh, and we do do physical function tests. So we do the, the senior fitness battery uh, in those people. Um, the IL-6 and the, the telomerase are the, the things that are really coming out um, uh, as positive findings with the, with the intervention thus far. Um, but um, but that, so that's our new, new thing on the block, but there is a lot of research that's needed here. And I know that Kathleen is exploring uh, her interventions. Uh, uh, but we need to find out when is the optimal timing uh, for cancer survivors. If you poll a cancer survivor, they will tell you that they want the intervention as soon after diagnosis as possible. So if you're a clinician, um, they really do want some sort of um, feedback as far as their diet goes, their, uh, their exercise goes. So um, uh, clinicians do play a very important role uh, in our on the front line. Uh, but we do need to know what specific content to deliver. Uh, again, we do. Weight loss looks really exciting. However, we do need a clinical trial that's going to give us answers there. Uh, we need to know about sequencing. So if you do a multi-component intervention, should the diet come first? Should the exercise come first? Should smoking cessation come first? Or should we do, you know, hit them with everything at once? I don't know. Uh, and we need to know uh, where, what kind of outcomes we can have, what those uh, mechanisms of action might be, um, and then factors that can modify that effect. We need to know optimal delivery channels, and that's all going to depend on the audience. If you have a childhood cancer survivor, uh, they may respond to um, something on, on an app, whereas a 65-year-old or an 80-year-old may say, if you put anything on my phone besides, uh, you know, who I should dial, forget it. I'm not going to use it. Uh, and we do need cost-effectiveness uh, um, data on our interventions. So with that, I'll um, stop and have five minutes for questions, and either on interventions or on the guidelines. So thank you for your attention. Question and back. My name is Jim Sargent. I just want to yes. thank you for coming here and uh, talking to our young nutritional uh, and, uh, and researchers. Uh, it's really a great thing for um, these uh, young investigators to have somebody of your caliber come here and help them with their. Yeah, well, it's good that they have you to, to do all the policy change so in, in tobacco control. so. And, and diet now, right? I, I do have a question about the recommendations. I'm really interested in how large corporate interests um, influence recommendations. I was struck by the fact that there was a, an explicit sugary drink um, exclusion on, on one set of recommendations and then none from the ACS one. And then I, so I, I, I googled Coke and ACS and found that Coca-Cola sponsors ACS, at least the live, the live positively program at ACS, or the oh. choose you program at ACS. So my question as somebody Nothing who sacred, on the recommendations, is it? did you, were you aware of any kind of corporate maneuvering to try to influence what your panel was trying to get across from the ACS to cancer patients? Um, no, uh, is the, the answer there. However, that's not to say, you know, you, you meet, and I'm sure people that have 
participated in guidelines panels. You go and you meet with a bunch of people for a very short length of time, and you all go home and you start to work on a, on a written document. Now, whether there was some maneuvering at that point in time, um, but there was no explicit type of maneuvering. Did the panel recommend a sugary drinks recommendation, or did the panel not reach agreement on that? You know, uh, well, I don't think we, I don't remember it being, uh, you know, you try to rely on your memory here, and I don't remember that it, it was not a, uh, any sort of point of dissension where one case said, oh, no sugar, and the other case said, oh, you know, we, we love sugar. Um, <laughs> so uh, th that point didn't come out. The um, added sugars uh, were discussed, added sugars, added fats. So, yeah, um, you point out a very, a very interesting point, mm -hmm. and I, I will... Actually, I know exactly who to ask, and I'll. What's well, an issue for ask. me? I, you know, I'm a pediatrician, and Coke sponsors the American Academy of Pediatrics. Oh. Um, we don't tell, to tell parents to put in baby bottles, but you know, we don't really think kids should be drinking Coke. Mm -hmm. um, and the American Academy of Family Practitioners also takes money from Coke, and Coke actually helps them with their dietary guidelines website. And, and that leads to really weird things like the juxtaposition of Coke ads with their recommendations for diabetics. So, so I, you know, I think, uh -huh. it's a, I think it's a big concern, you know, the, how corporate interests actually might, after a panel makes recommendations, influence what the actual, you know, um, agency comes out with. Yeah, and, and because, you know, it's the... Um, it, as you, you know, the, the wordsmithing, and, and the, it could be very subtle changes that that were cut you know left on the editing floor as those those uh record that's very interesting i i i'm definitely going to follow up on this yeah um i just wanted to thank you also i've been reading your work for years and it's definitely had an impact on my clinical practice do you have any thoughts on what will be required for insurance to cover a rehab program for oncology for cancer survivors? Is it a large enough study to show a survival benefit, or, or what do you think is necessary? Yeah, well, right now, it's, um, I mean, that's a very interesting point, and that's the, actually a thrust of many of these papers. If you read the, the Cancer uh, Journal for Clinician paper, that uh, uh, there is... Um, a lot of verbiage that is spent toward what are we going to need in order to get this covered in, in patients. We have a cardiac care model for, you know, for, for people that have uh, had, a, had a cardiac event. Why don't we have any kind of coverage for cancer patients? Now, um, in some of those uh, uh, meetings, there have been representatives of Medicare, Medicaid. Uh, and Medicare, Medicaid will cover to uh, it's same sort of obesity coverage that people would get. So they'll cover two visits for an obese uh, cancer survivor, uh, but they will not cover uh, uh, any sort of visits just for physical, you know, for physical act, general physical activity. They will not cover visits for overweight, uh, and uh, um, so they really wait until people are. Are, have a, a, a larger problem in, in order for there to be coverage currently. Uh, and that's why cost analysis is so important. Now, 
Is it to say that, you know, uh, uh, intervention has to be cost effective in order to be delivered? Probably not, but what we need to know are, are, the, are the costs of that intervention and then the benefit, uh, whether it be quality of life, whether it be some hard cancer outcomes that's at the, the end of it. Um, and there are some people that say what you do need is a survival. You need a survival, um, uh, a show of survival benefit in order for coverage to occur. So, um, yeah, so right now we're kind of left with a, with a, a little bit of a mess. Um, there are some really quite nice websites that, that the, the Livestrong uh, Strong website is actually quite nice for cancer survivors, uh, for exercise, for uh, watching calories. Uh, however, um, I think um, a, a point, uh, one of the points that we have to keep in mind is, is that many cancer survivors are, are age 65 and older. Uh, in fact, the majority of cancer survivors are 65 and older, and many of those sites are very health, uh, very young generation type of sites that older people get turned off by. So I don't know if I answered your question. I know I kind of ran around it, but I don't really have a direct answer. Sorry, Dr. Chamberlain. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks very much for a wonderful, wonderful uh, talk. Yeah, thank you.